from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents interviews of ordinary people who choose the Baha'i faith as a way of life. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. My son Damien was at the Northeast Baha'i Youth Conference this year where 1,000 young people gathered in Stamford, Connecticut. At this conference, Rain Wilson, who plays the supporting character role of Dwight Schrute in the hit TV sitcom The Office, was there as the keynote speaker. Damien had the opportunity to have a one-on-one interview with Rain. He starts the interview by asking Rain where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. Well, I, I was born uh, in Seattle, Washington. Um, and spent the first couple years of my life there. I don't really remember too much of that. When I was about three years old, uh, my parents moved to Central America. They were Baha'is, and Baha'is do something called pioneering often, where they'll leave their country and go to another country. It's a little different than what we think of as missionary work, because they didn't go to Central America to try and convert the people. They really were going to be of service to the Baha'i community there certainly to teach the message of the Baha'i faith, but my dad actually ran an oyster farm on the coast, on the Caribbean coast of of Nicaragua, and I grew up a Nicaraguan boy speaking fluent Spanish, which I've, of course, subsequently forgotten, you know, running around the jungles and stuff, getting worms and, you know, all kinds of crazy diseases and stuff like that, And, and then went back to Seattle and went to elementary school and junior high and part of high school there. I forgot to mention, of course, Rain Wilson. This is the Rain Wilson. Um, he's a Hollywood television and movie actor, and he's uh, currently the Rain Wilson. I'm not the fake Rain Wilson. <laughs> this is the I'm this not is the, the one. Rain Wilson. He's currently a star on the hit television show The Office. Tell us a little bit about how the Baha'i faith came into your life. I don't know if your parents were Baha'is, if if raises a Baha'i, or how that how that happened. Yeah, my parents became Baha'is in the early '60s. The concept of unity kind of pervading our lives was a real privilege. The Baha'i faith doesn't believe in automatically passing down the religion from generation to generation just simply out of tradition, but each individual has to decide for themselves whether or not they think that it's right for them, regardless of whether their family is Baha'i. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like for you? Did you go through any periods of doubt, or were you always an active young Baha'i since you were brought up as a Baha'i, or... How would you describe your transition from being raised as a Baha'i youth into an adult who assumes that identity on your own? Well, uh, you bring up an excellent point. One of the key tenets of the Baha'i faith is the individual investigation of truth. It's probably maybe the only worldwide religion out there that has as one of its core tenets the obligation of every member of its, of, of, of its religion to seek the truth for themselves and to not mirror or parrot the truth that they've learned from someone else. 
yeah, I, I grew up a Baha'i and was very active and involved in the Baha'i faith. And then when I moved to New York when I was 20 years old and went to acting school at New York University, I basically decided that uh, Baha'i faith wasn't for me, that I didn't want to be a part of any organized religion, which is something we hear quite a lot from people these days. They don't want to have anything to do with an organized religion. And I felt that way. I was 20 years old. I was living in the big city. I was doing acting. and I didn't want anyone telling me what I could and couldn't do. I didn't want to feel beholden to any organization. So I decided to just kind of go off on my own. And basically what happened for the next 10 years, um, I went on a long spiritual journey of seeking my own path. Art, acting, theater kind of became my god. And my career became the focus of my life, not my soul. And it was interesting, and I'm glad I took that journey. It was, it was where, where I needed to go. So basically what happened to me was I found myself a few years later, you know, embarking on my acting career, and I definitely felt that I was missing something. I definitely felt that God was missing from my life. Something God-like, God-ish was missing from my life. And I couldn't put my finger on it. But I just knew I, I, I had to in my early 20s in, my, in, you know, in all of my infinite wisdom at, at the you know, age of 23. That I knew that I, I just couldn't believe in the God of organized religion. Uh, someone telling me right from wrong or making me feel bad for doing the wrong things. And I, I really rebelled against that whole patriarchal idea of God. But then I came around to reading a book about Native American spiritual tradition. And, and I decided, you know what? I can believe in Wankantanka. I can believe in the great spirit. I can believe in the great creator. And that's how I needed to believe in God at that time. And I needed to throw out any kind of Judeo-Christian remnants of, of a judgmental God and strike out on my own. And so I, I, I called God Wankantanka for a long time, which is, a, I think, a Lakota word for the great spirit. I remember uh, watching a baseball game with a friend who was watching a Mets game and it was the bottom of the ninth inning and I was, had been talking to him all day about Juan Cantanka and my belief in the great spirit and the creator, the creative force in the universe and this was my new understanding of God and I wasn't sure where that was going to lead me but I definitely felt a connection to that God. I felt it through nature and through the kind of the, the same creative fire that created the universe was the same kind of creative energy that fed me as an actor and that made great theater and great art because that's how I could also understand God was through, through art. I didn't understand it through, not through morality. I didn't understand it through parable or through story or through any of those things. I could only understand it through, through art. He said, well, if you believe in Juan Cantanka so much, why don't you pray to Juan Cantanka that the Mets win this game because they were down in the bottom of the ninth. And uh, Strawberry was at the, uh, at the plate. And so I said a prayer to Juan Cantanka right there, right out loud. I was like, Juan Cantanka, if you exist, let the Mets win this game. And Daryl Strawberry hits a three-run home run, and they win it in the bottom of the ninth. And I was, that's it. I was sealed at that point. I was like, holy <laughs> moly. That's astonishing. I'm, gonna, I, I'm totally in <laughs> for the whole Juan Cantanka thing. And um, I don't even know if I'm saying it right. It sounds like Willy Wonka. It sounds like I'm saying Willy Wonka. Um, but so what I did is, I, you know, what, where I came around to is like, if I believe in a God, how do I know what this God wants for me? Because surely there is 
if there is a creative force in the universe, that creative force has some kind of plan that has some kind of goal for, for both me and for all of us in humanity. Surely it's not just left up to us to meditate under a tree or take a yoga class or gaze into a crystal or experience God when we're on a nice hike and then leave it at that. Surely it can't just be that. Surely it has to be more specific than a kind of a vague notion. You know, because I, I ask my friends, and this is, the, this is the issue I have with a lot of people of my generation and the younger generation as well. You ask them if they believe in God and they'll say, yeah, kind of, sure. Yeah, I kind of sort of believe in a force. I mean, I don't believe in a guy with a beard on a cloud who's judgmental. And I know certainly could never be a part of any organized religion. But yeah, I kind of believe in God. Well, that's a very vague belief. It's kind of like being kind of pregnant. It's like, if you believe in God, if you believe that there is a creator, then I believe it becomes your obligation at that point to discover what that God wants for you and what that God's plan is and what, why we're put here. Uh, surely it's not just to put here and kind of be kind of nice to the people that live on our cul-de-sac and then we die. Like, it's got to be something a little bit more than that. Mm -hmm. And that quest led me to looking at religion in a new way, in a fresh way. Yeah. And I read a lot of the holy books, um, read the New Testament and parts of the Old Testament and uh, the Dhammapada, the teachings of the Buddha. And, and the only thing that made sense to me is the fact, is the central Baha'i belief, this core belief that Baha'is call progressive revelation, which is that God's message is gradually unfolded to humankind through divine teachers that appear every epoch or so, every thousand years or so, to various parts of mankind, to various tribes and various areas, and they carry a message from God to humankind for those people. And this is kind of what gradually led me back to the Baha'i faith, because I couldn't formalize, I couldn't view it any other way. I had to believe that God had a plan, and I couldn't believe that any of the existing religions, Christianity or Islam or, or Buddhism or whatever, had all the answers for humankind. And that led me back to the writings of Baha'u'llah. So Baha'is basically believe that from Krishna to Buddha to Abraham to Moses to Jesus, Muhammad, God's message is gradually unfolding like a book and that Baha'u'llah and his message is the latest chapter in this unfolding book of Revelation. And there's many prophets of God that we'll never know of, that have appeared in distant places that maybe didn't write down their language and so they're forgotten. And there will be these divine manifestations of God, these divine messengers appearing for the thousands of years that remain in human history. Um, and that's kind of what led me back to the Baha'i faith. And the first book I read when I came, when I started coming back to the Baha'i faith was a book called The Dawnbreakers. And The Dawnbreakers is um, kind of infamous in its length. It's over a thousand pages long. And it's a history of the early years of the Baha'i faith. And the advent of a man named the Bab, whose uh, name means the gate. And he was the forerunner of Baha'u'llah served a purpose much like John the Baptist does in, 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 in Christianity. I really got swept up in that story 
And I was really moved by the sacrifice made by the early Baha'is and, and the purity of their belief. And that led me to read other Baha'i books and, and gradually come to a kind of a new, deeper, richer understanding of my role as a Baha'i and my role as a world citizen. And basically, how there is no existing system of belief right now that is out there that can that can heal mankind right now, mm -hmm. that can solve the problems of the world. Mm -hmm. There's not a political party, there's not an environmental movement, there's not a women's movement, there's not a racial movement, there's not a, a charity organization, there's not a, a kind of a social structure organization like communism or socialism or none of these things, no existing religion, Islam, you know, Christianity, Buddhism, these are not, none of these organizations are able to unite the world and heal the problems, that the problem with the world right now is a spiritual one. There's a spiritual disease happening. And Baha'u'llah's message addresses that disease. And that's why he was here specifically for this day and age. And you went to acting school, and I don't know what year that was, but I guess you struggled as an artist for probably a long time before you... Yes, I did. Plenty of struggles. Sure. And you said you were in New York, and then eventually did you make it out to Los Angeles, or did you get there from New York? Did you hit... Yeah, long story short, I got out of acting school, and I didn't have an agent, and doors were repeatedly shut in my face. Um, I was able to get some acting work. I'd worked in Shakespeare in the park, and then I joined an acting, a traveling acting troupe called The Acting Company. And I did classical plays for two and a half years, touring the country, doing high school gymnasiums and, and various theaters across America. And, and that was a great, uh, a great experience. But even then, I didn't really have an agent. I wasn't really able to be seen for, you know, stuff in New York or TV or film. And it was a long, slow road of me doing theater and living basically at the poverty level for like nine years in New York until finally an opportunity arose for me and my wife to move to Los Angeles. And it really was fate. I mean, when I look back on it now, like the way that everything worked out for me to move to Los Angeles was extraordinary. Um, we had created a show in New York called The New Bozina, and we called it a slacker vaudeville. And it was a sketch comedy clown show. And we had run it off Broadway to great acclaim, lost a bundle of money on it, but it got good reviews and, and did pretty well. And our producer moved to Los Angeles to work in, in TV and film. And, and then he was calling us all the time saying, you guys, we've got to bring the new Bozina out to Los Angeles. Uh, people are going to flip for it out here. We can sell it. We can make it into a TV show. And then right around that same time, my wife and I had the dream apartment in New York City. We had one of those apartments like, like the guys in Friends had. <laughs> we had a three-bedroom loft style apartment in Fort Greene, Brooklyn with a wow. deck and bay windows and a view of the park that we paid $800 a month. Oh my God. It was the most, it was such a wonderful place to live. And the landlords basically paid us 35 grand to move out, which for me, I'd never made over 20 grand in a year as an actor for nine years in a row. So all of a sudden to be offered 35 grand just to move out of a place, we thought we'd hit the lottery. I mean, I was like, oh, we could live forever on this money. <laughs> and that was the same time as the new Bozina. And then everyone's schedule opened up and all of a sudden everyone was like, hey, we really could go to LA and do the new Bozina. So my wife and I, we had an old van, we threw everything in the back, 
we drove out to LA with our two pit bulls and a van full of stuff and our $35,000 in the bank. And we went and did the new Bozina in Los Angeles. My agents, I did finally have an agent by that point in time through, that's a much longer story, but I couldn't get them to return my calls and I couldn't get them to meet with me. Um, somehow I, I don't know if it's even worth going into here. I, I ended up booking a TV pilot right when I moved to Los Angeles, which is pretty unheard of. Um, and then I also booked a part in a movie, my first, uh, in two movies. My first movies that I did when I moved to LA were Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous, and I did a part in Galaxy Quest. And so two great DreamWorks movies I did in the same summer. That must have been incredibly confirming to just move out there yeah. with money in your pocket, and, feeling good. And you know, and work. we weren't sure which way our lives were going to go. We were thinking about moving to Minneapolis. I had done a bunch of plays at the Guthrie Theater, and I was thinking, oh, maybe we'd just go buy a little house in suburban Minneapolis and do theater there. And we weren't sure which way things were going to go. And all of a sudden, these floodgates opened. I mean, I did the pilot. I did those movie parts. And then the new Bozina, we got representation and we got a pilot deal at Fox. Hmm. And so all of a sudden we were creating a television show. And then we were like, well, you know, God wants me to stay in Los Angeles, obviously. Mm -hmm. this, is, uh, this is just too good to be true. And of course, right after that point, I didn't work again for a year. <laughs> so you never know how it's going to go. But it, it all worked out well for me in Los Angeles. But that's that's long story short, that's, that's how it went. But in my, in my days in New York, I mean... I lived for uh, about a year in a, an abandoned beer brewery in Brooklyn, wow. and I drove a moving van and did catering. I carried sandwiches in a basket from door to door and selling them during lunch times in the garment district for years. Uh, I did all, anything I could to just pay the bills and mm -hmm. just keep acting and and getting and trying to get paid for acting and gathering experiences, which has which has served me well. But and you know mm -hmm. no. Now I'm a hugely famous international sex symbol, billionaire. How would you describe this this rise to fame? I imagine that you didn't consider yourself probably weren't all that recognizable after something on Galaxy Quest or whatever. I imagine it was was it was, well, it was, it was very, immediate or was it, it gradual? Was, it, it was very gradual. Um, thanks for asking that question because a lot of people think it just comes right away. And you know, after nine years of doing theater in New York. Then I moved to L.A., and then I did some small parts in some movies and some pilots, and I did got a couple other little parts in movies like America's Sweethearts and some indie films. I did House of a Thousand Corpses um, and some other TV guest stars like Charmed and CSI and little TV shows and stuff like that. But I was always making enough money to get by, did Law & Order, and, you know, I was just, you know, I, I was getting good residuals and... You know, it was you know, it was making a, I was making a nice living, but there would be long stretches of months sure. that I didn't work. And but I gradually people got to know me more and more and more. And in a place like Los Angeles, it's all about getting to know people and having them right. see that you can deliver. And the same casting people that cast sure. me in the small part in America's Sweethearts brought me in for Six Feet Under. Okay. And the same casting woman that cast me in a little pilot that I did called Mark of Greatness in 2002 was the same one who brought me in for the office. Yeah. It's, it's getting to know these people and developing these creative relationships. And that takes years, unfortunately. It, it really was the role on Six Feet Under that kind of pushed me over the top and, and got me into a lot of recognition. That um, 
I, that was the fifth role I auditioned for on Six Feet Under. They kept bringing me in for different various roles, like gay choir members and <laughs> people that would die and this. And I never could book anything. And they kept bringing me in. And I was like, ah, oh, I just want a part on this show. I love this show. It's so amazing. And yeah. I knew Michael Hall and Peter Krause because we had all gone to NYU together and really wanted to be on that show. And then I didn't even, they didn't even call me in for the part of Arthur Martin, which was the first part I got on Six Feet Under. I auditioned for... Uh, a gay choir member that was in that episode. And then I pulled the casting person aside and I said, would it be okay if I read for this other part? And she went in and checked and then said, yeah, you can come back in and read. Um, but you have to come back in and read right now. You can't. And I hadn't even really prepared it. Mm -hmm. But I went in and it was just a part that I was really born to play. And it was playing that role that opened up a lot of things and got me parts in Sahara and in the indie film Badass and and eventually, you know, led the doors opening to me getting on the office. And uh, then it's all moved forward from then. So it's all a gradual building process. You know, the Baha'is have high ideals because um, our basic aim is the, as you said, that the world needs a spiritual change. So we're, that's what we're actively trying to, trying to achieve, a spiritual, spiritualization of the planet. Is it a challenge at all to maintain um, these lofty ideals in the Hollywood atmosphere? Yeah, that um, that's interesting. I get I get asked this question a lot. And I guess I've, I don't know why. Maybe I've been protected by God, but I feel that by and large, the people that I've worked with, the people I've come in contact with in Los Angeles, I mean, um, there's certainly some unsavory folks that I've met, and there's certainly some materialistically minded folks that I've met and people that are just seeking kind of status and popularity and fame. And there is a lot of that there. But um, by and large, so many of the people that I work with in Los Angeles are um, really good people in the industry, in the entertainment industry. They're family people. Their faith is strong. A lot of Jewish people that work there, but they're, you know, they go to synagogue and really believe in the, in the Jewish ideals and the, especially the strength of the family and and a lot of people that with a lot of integrity, trying to make really quality entertainment. And those are most of the people that I've come in contact with. There've been some jerks, but I think it's that way in any business. Mm -hmm. I've worked in a lot of different businesses and my feeling is that, you know, there's a lot of jerks and there's a lot of people that are just seeking status and, and, and material gains. If you're in insurance or a stockbroker or in real estate or you know, in anything. Yeah. So it, I think it's kind of the same percentage. I think the the problem is with Hollywood is that what you read in the magazines mm -hmm. is always kind of the worst of the worst. Mm -hmm. That's what makes the press. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Even what you read in like Vanity Fair about mm -hmm. media moguls, you mm -hmm. know, it's like those are, that's a certain type of people. But mm -hmm. a lot of people in LA are just good people. They got families they want to support. They love comedy or they love storytelling and they want to tell fun, cool, exciting stories and make some money at it and, and have a good time with their friends doing it. Hmm. So it sounds like you haven't felt a real dramatic change, for instance, your time in New York, your time in L.A. You're not, you know, suffering in L.A. trying, you know, trying to sort of walk the line or get out of a certain particular kind of atmosphere. You're fairly comfortable and you have a family as well. Yeah, I have a wife and a son. And yes, yeah, so you're talking about that transition between L.A. and New York. You know, there's this kind of belief that New York is this land of the pure theater and the pure artistry and LA is everyone selling out and getting hair implants and driving BMWs, which is true, but, but I, I don't view it that way. I think that New York theater 
is actually a very impure place that is just very much concerned with status and popularity. They'll give the, any kind of mediocre TV star wants to do any part in any play. They would jump at the opportunity to give it to some some hack that's been on a soap opera instead of some New, uh, New York theater actor with uh, amazing you know theater credentials. And there's a hypocrisy in New York that, oh, it's so artistic, you know, in the theater and and it's a meritocracy and you work your way up and mm -hmm. develop this great resume and stuff like that. But it's not the case. At least in L.A., there's no hypocrisy. I mean, you know that if you're really good, you'll get the part. But that's also balanced, like, with what you bring to the project in terms of viewers. I mean, yeah. if you're better known, you'll bring in more viewers and they you know, making stuff in Hollywood is really expensive and people sure. are protecting their investment. It makes sense. Right. Like you're going to spend a, buy a, you know, you're going to have a movie that costs $85 million. You're not just going to cast some unknown in the lead. You're going to get someone like Brad Pitt that people are going to pay money to go see in the theater. It's just, it's just sound business practice. It's just how it works. And it's the same on a TV show. You're going to cast people on a TV show that people want to tune in and see each week. Um, so there's there's a lack of hypocrisy about LA. LA. LA is is business and art kind of woven together. Whereas in New York, it is also business and art. And this under the pretext of of this art, it, it really is a lot more cutthroat business kind of going on underneath the New York theater scene. Tell us about your your family life. Has becoming a star impacted your life at home at all? Yeah, um, there's a lot of challenges with becoming a, a celebrity and becoming recognizable, I try and keep it as, as real as humanly possible. Mostly it's a lot more demands on me, on my time, and I just need to make sure that I'm always have my family priority as, as first priority. Mm -hmm. Sunday is our sacred family day and nothing else gets scheduled on a Sunday and oh, that's wow. this day we always spend as a family that's and uh, make sure that Today is Sunday, and here I am in, in Stamford, Connecticut, <laughs> speaking at a youth conference. But no, you but know your what? Dad's here. Your dad's here. I'm right? going here tonight. Tomorrow's President's Day, so tomorrow also, President's you got a bonus day, day. You got a bonus is day. going to be. It's a bonus day. Bonus That's right. family day. That's right. Yeah, I just try and prioritize that, and you know, make sure I spend a lot of time with my wife and son, which is my favorite thing to do. And you know, the only thing that changes when you're when you're a celebrity is, is that a lot more demands are made on your time and energy. And so you have to kind of keep track of that. Usually when someone calls you or emails you, it's no longer to kind of chat. It's usually to ask for something, mm -hmm. either a, a signature or some time or sure. something in an event or, or something like that. And, and, uh, and the other thing is, you know, being in public and just being recognized and, and, and dealing with that. So and then yeah. you kind of learn how to set limits with people. And right. I have no problem at this point saying no if someone wants to take my picture or say, right. get an autograph because there's times for that and mm -hmm. when I'm available for that I'm available and then there's times when right. I'm not interested in, in yeah. doing that and uh, I should just mention that I've seen you last day you know and you're in the hallways at this youth conference and you know I know that a lot of probably most of if not all the kids here you know they've never had a Baha'i celebrity of your stature at one of these conferences and so they're just you know, they don't even know how to deal with it. And they're surrounding you and they're asking for autographs and photos. And you have been so unbelievably gracious and warm. I mean, you, not only do you well, just, just stand there. I just a few there. of them off by saying, sometimes I'm like, you've seen me when I've been mobbed and signing autographs, but there's been plenty of times. And they're like, can I have a picture with you? 
I'm sorry, not right now. Oh I'm yeah, sorry. I'm yeah, busy. Well, it's nice to see both, I suppose, to get a sense of how it how it must be for you. But yeah. I was really impressed with. Well, you know, asking I, people's names, you're shaking their hand. I thought, you know, it's just so. Well, I, as I joked with them, these Baha'is, they're so celebrity starved. You know, these Baha'i <laughs> kids, um, poor, poor kids. There's so few Baha'i, well-known Baha'is, um, that they're just so thrilled that someone has some kind of success and recognition. And you know, I'm, I'm a pretty minor celebrity, as, as you know, as, as celebrities go. You know, playing a supporting part on a, on a TV comedy. I've just trying to figure out how I'm, you know, I'm a celebrity and a family and I have my faith and how can I be of greatest service to my faith and how can I be of greatest service to the world and help use my celebrity to that end. There's a charity that I've been involved with called the Mona Foundation and I do a lot of fundraisers for them. They raise money to give directly to a lot of grassroots charity organizations around the world so they're kind of an umbrella organization and they find a lot of smaller charities that have risen up in, in different communities in the world and they find out what they need and raise the money here in the States to give it directly to them. So, mm. you know, we've raised money to build a science lab at a girl's school wow. in Tanzania and stuff like that. So that's also been a really satisfying thing to know that just my presence as being a guy who happens to be on a TV show and um, is able to help them raise money for such worthy causes. Do you turn down roles? Do you find are you offered things that um, don't fit in with your Baha'i ideals or, your, or maybe just your own personal identity? If you, if yeah, I, I've, I've, I've turned down a, a number of different roles. Um, I said in a talk last night, I said, you know, I've turned down a lot of roles that are morally reprehensible and projects that are morally reprehensible. That being said, I've taken roles that are kind of morally dubious, <laughs> morally questionable, just because I, you know, you have to weigh a lot of different things when sure. you take a role. Uh, part of it is, you know, I also need to be of service to my family. And right. I'm, I'm the breadwinner and I have to support the family. But yeah, I was, I remember there was this show, the Chris Isaac show was on Showtime. For many years and they kept wanting me to come in for the chris isaac's best friend who all the guy did was like get laid drink get high <laughs> and tell jokes about it and there was no kind of effort made at uh, kind of finding any dimension or depth to the character at all and i just kept saying no to coming in and they kept trying to get me to audition and it's like i could never live with myself if i spent three years five years seven years playing that that role and getting known mm. as that. I mean, it's hard enough getting known right now as like the dweeby, <laughs> creepy, eccentric paper salesman, Dwight Schrute. But, uh, welcome back to Stanford, by the way. I thought yes. that was kind of funny that we're here. The Stanford branch. It's the Stanford here branch is. right around Looking the corner. at the window right there at the Stanford branch. <laughs> Actually, I'm just curious, do you guys do any of the shooting on this coast? Because I know that the uh, exteriors look very much like Connecticut. You know, well, we shot dry. a bunch of exteriors in Scranton and in Stanford, but no, everything is shot in L.A. Yeah. And we're talking about going to shoot in Scranton, and we keep talking about how to do it, but it gets really tricky. It's like bringing a cast and crew of a couple hundred people to a city like Scranton and trying to shoot there. Like, we would shut the city down. Yeah. It, would, it would actually be harder. We're out in the middle of the valley in Van Nuys shooting, and we kind of cheat the exteriors, and no one pays any attention to us. You know, we kind of just, there's always film crews around shooting. And sure. 
that's what we do. But if we were in Scranton, it would like the the city would come to a screeching halt, mm -hmm. and it would uh, it would be so difficult to do. And you've got weather issues and stuff like that. But we'd love to find a way to come and shoot in our in our city in the Dunder Mifflin's home city of Scranton, Pennsylvania. But we haven't found a way to do it yet. Can you tell us anything about how? Being a Baha'i affects your relationships with your colleagues. I know it's normal for myself, for instance, and many Baha'i friends that I have to speak to. You know, a lot of my colleagues know that I'm a Baha'i, and occasional questions will come up, or maybe even an event will come up, and one of them might come to a no ruse or something like that. It's, it's a pretty normal part of a lot of Baha'i's lives. What's that like as an actor working on a set? I know you must get very close with these people. Do you talk about these kinds of things? Is yeah, I feel like the office cast is my second family. You know, and various people have come to various Baha'i events that we've had. Jenna Fisher came to a devotional gathering we had, and um, you know, people ask me a lot of questions about it. And um, the Baha'i fast is coming up, and that's always a tough, tough one when you're shooting a TV show. Yeah, um, what do you do? Baha'i fast from uh, from sunup till sundown. It's like like Ramadan. So we get up early and eat a big breakfast before the sun comes up, and then eat after it goes down and that's that's a tricky one. That's um, I've actually a couple of times almost passed out on the set uh, in the afternoon just from you know an inability to uh, you know low blood sugar and, hmm. and stuff like that. So you know there's a there's an exception in the in the Baha'i laws to the fast for for manual labor, mm -hmm. and uh, sometimes I feel like what I'm doing is manual labor. Sure. So I'll just you know have a little bit of you know, half a bagel and some orange juice to yeah. just kind of get me through sure. just to do the job so I don't pass out. And, you know, and I have an obligation to the show and a professional obligation oh, to the, uh, you know, the millions of people that watch the show and stuff to, to be funny. It's hard to be funny when you haven't eaten in <laughs> 10 hours and you're about ready to pass out. Comedy, kind of humor. comedy becomes very, very challenging at that point. But yeah, but my second family, the office, they all know that I'm Baha'is. A lot of them have their own religious faith. A lot of them are just agnostics. But, uh, you know, here's the thing is what's amazing is that, you know, I learned so much from them. Like Steve Carell, for instance. I think he's Catholic. Uh, he doesn't talk about his religious faith very much. He's a very private guy. He is the sweetest, kindest, most polite guy. I've never seen him say an unkind word to anyone. I've never seen him talk behind anyone's back. I've never seen him be rude. Sometimes he'll get tired and just a little bit impatient or grumpy, mm. but under his demanding schedule, that's certainly called for. And I tell you, for me, it's my job to learn mm -hmm. from other people and from their beliefs. And I've learned so much about working as an actor from Steve wow. and from John and Jenna. Uh, Jenna is such a professional and so so kind and and always loving and knows everybody's names. And wow. I tell you, you know, I'm a Baha'i, and these are these are spiritual virtues that we prize dearly. But I really learn my lessons from a lot of people that aren't Baha'is. I think that's an important thing for for Baha'is to do. Like, we do not have a lock mm. on spirituality. We do not have a lock on virtues. We can learn a great deal from other people and and their beliefs and their way in the world. You gave last night a fantastic talk to the Baha'i youth here. Well, thank you, Damien. That was one of the most inspiring, funny talks that I've heard in a long time. Thank Is this you. your first, I think I heard that it was your first conference where you've been asked to come and be the main speaker. Is that true? This is the first conference where I've been asked to be the main speaker, yeah. 
Speaking about the Baha'i faith is very, very difficult for me. It's extremely challenging. Acting is easy for me at this point. I can pretty much get thrown a piece of material and kind of digest it for a little bit and just play with it and, and do a good job um, with the acting. And I feel comfortable acting. I feel comfortable doing comedy. I feel comfortable in front of a crowd. But speaking about my faith and speaking about from my heart about issues of faith is really challenging. I feel like an imposter most of the time because I'm not a very learned Baha'i. I mean, there are the Baha'is that can get up and quote the writings of Baha'u'llah and always have a perfect story to go with it and just blow me away with their, with their speaking ability. And I'm just not one of those kind of people. So I just try, uh, I've been speaking more and more recently and it's a, it's a, it's a skill I want to try and develop and cultivate in speaking about my faith. And I'm in a unique position. You know, I'm a, I'm a minor TV celebrity with some recognition who happens to be a member of a strange religion with a weird sounding name. And so it then behooves me to become fluent in being able to talk about it and not shut out who I am. I think that's the most important thing for anyone that wants to speak about their faith, Baha'i or not. Like you have to bring yourself to the table. Here's who I am. This is my career. This is, uh, you know, you're a magician. You're a rocket scientist. You're whatever it is. Oops, I hit the mic. You know, whatever it is that you do, my mom's a yoga teacher, what, if someone's an artist or whatever, like bring, you don't need to negate yourself when you speak about your faith. You want to accentuate yourself and bring, and part of what I do is I, I tell jokes and, and I'm, I'm irreverent and I like to cause a ruckus and I have, and I'm, I'm not going to stop that just because I'm speaking about the teachings of Baha'u'llah, sure. which I love very much. And I think that there's a, a big issue in all of the religious faiths that what is sacred often starts to get precious. And it can't be precious because people don't respond to that. It can't be moralistic. It can't be lecturing. It can't be soft and sentimental and precious. Those are not, that's not what my faith is. My faith is not soft and sentimental and precious. It's profound. It's sacred. It's heartfelt. It's moving. Um, it's alive. It's breathing. But it's none of those other things, you know. Faith is a lot like nature. Nature can be very harsh. Nature can be troublesome. It can be dangerous and beautiful at the same time. And that's what a religious faith needs to be, just like art can be all of those different things. And so I try and speak about my faith and my experience with great humor and great irreverence and, you know, get out and kick some ass and take some names. Well, you did a fantastic job tonight. Thank you, uh, Rain. This has been Rain Wilson, television and this film star. This Rain Wilson. Current star on the television show, The Office. We really appreciate you coming down and talking with us. I'm going to let you go because I know you've got a busy schedule. Yep. We're well, very happy. Thanks for having me here. It's, uh, it's a pleasure talking to you, and I'll see you around. All right. Best of luck in your career. Thanks so much.
I hope you enjoyed that interview with Rain Wilson, conducted by Damien Odeschillette. Rain is a television and movie actor who plays the supporting character role Dwight Schrute on the hit TV sitcom The Office. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Think that no one will blame us Letting injustice go on as it does But the starving don't care About the price of your haircut Any true kindness will do Because Bono can't change the world Anymore Remember
remember that Bono can't change the world anymore. Giving away what isn't mine 
I really claim my life for my time Or even the hometown where I landed The slipping away I'll be empty-handed So all I can call these things my own Gonna give them to you And if I can call these things my own Gonna give them to you Midnight 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.